0: Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. Our guest today is Montek Singh Alawalia. He was the deputy chairman of India's Economic Planning Commission for 10 years from 2004 to 2014, during which time, Mr. Alawalia, you had an incredible achievement of putting India on a, susa- on a path of sustained high growth, something that people have been trying to do for decades. So I'm just delighted to have you here and have an opportunity to learn from you how to transform a big economy like India. Thanks for joining us on the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me here. I should say, by the way, it's not my achievement, it's India's achievement. Lots and lots of people contributed to that. But it is true that India did get uh, pretty established as a high growth rate country during that period.
0: I'm sure that many people contributed. Your own role, I think, is widely admired by many people. Uh, And that's very relevant to our topic today. You've just given a talk here at WRI on uh, India's path to uh, low-carbon development. Uh, You've outlined a number of issues. We will post that online. I encourage those listening to the podcast to listen to that talk. We won't be able to cover all of it here. But the thing that struck me in listening to you talk today was your experience working with others in getting India onto a high-sustained growth path is very, very relevant to the next transformation, which is to have high-sustained and low-carbon growth. As a policymaker, what are the ingredients for shifting an economy the size of India's?
1: That's a tough one. I mean, but I would say, first of all, uh, there has to be uh, an adequate professional consensus uh, that this is the right way to go. And I think uh, in India, uh, most of what we did on economic reforms sort of uh, fitted in with what people thought was the way of making an economy uh, get onto a high-growth path, liberalize the economy, opened it up, invite foreign investment, increase efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in climate change, you know, unlike these other areas, climate change is a new subject. Uh, There are differences of view, uh, and until those differences are satisfactorily resolved, you may not get enough consensus that something is really going to work. Also, a lot of it is difficult. So what you have to do is going to hurt some people, uh, immediately. And the benefits are longer term. And that's one of the classic problems with the reform movement. I mean, if you're doing something which is going to hurt people right now, or, or they're going to have to bear costs right now, and the benefits are really uh, some negative thing avoided over the longer term, people have to understand that in order to give political support uh, to getting it done. One of
0: the things that we have been uh, very heavily involved here at WRI is in the work of the uh, Global Commission on the Economy and Climate and the New Climate Economy. And I'm sure you're familiar with the work. And I think that the, to boil all that work down into a nutshell, let's say it's it's very much in countries' own interest to get ahead with climate action, to move ahead, because they will achieve immediate advantages in terms of reduction of air pollution, reduction of mortality, that a low-carbon, high-efficiency economy is in countries' own national interest, regardless of what others do, and also that the benefits, even in the short term, outweigh the costs. Now, obviously, there's distributional effects, and as you mentioned today, they're a vested interest. But the idea that taking climate action can benefit an economy not only in the long term, but also in the short to medium term, is that something that you are persuaded? Do you agree with that?
1: Well, I'm personally uh, persuaded, particularly in the area of pollution. You know, uh, urban pollution is a huge problem in India. And we know that other countries uh, have managed to tackle it over a period of a few years. But, you know, it's not short term in the sense that you do something right now and you see the benefit next week or even next month. But still, you will see the benefit uh, in in a relatively short period. And I think we need more awareness on the part of people that not doing anything about it is actually hurting them, and it's very often the poor that are hurt the most.
0: You said something that I think many Americans, even those who follow climate issues, might be surprised to know, which is that India has a tax on coal. Uh, You mentioned the initial level, the substantial increase, and how much farther it needs to go. I wonder if you could talk about that for a minute, because I think here in this country, as you know, we've had some very disruptive political uh, trends and concern about coal. The fact that India is a developing country is taxing coal, I think, is something that a lot of Americans should hear about.
1: Well, uh, I'd be happy to give you a short uh, account. You know, uh, a few years ago, this was when I was in the government, uh, economists had always been saying that, look, we need to spend some money Uh, On promoting green energy and also uh, taking care of water pollution problems. And the best way of uh, collecting that money was to tax polluting activity. So we introduced a clean energy cess on coal at a relatively low rate of about 50 rupees per tonne, which is actually less than a dollar a tonne. And then uh, over time, uh, our government raised it a bit. The present government in India has done even more. And right now it's 400 rupees per ton, which is approximately $5 per ton. But, you know, international studies uh, amply demonstrate that if you really want to take into account the cost of coal and build that into the price so that you discourage coal optimally, that tax has to be increased to a, a 9 to 10 times. The present no other country has done it. Uh, but I think we have a base uh, which we could build upon. And certainly, for example, if we have to encourage uh, solar uh, power generation and bear the cost of integrating this variable source with the grid, and that has to be subsidized, uh, then the best way of subsidizing it, in my view, is that that subsidy should come from a cess on coal which would not only be used to actually subsidize clean energy, but would raise the cost of not so clean energy, so getting a double benefit.
0: You use the word cess, which I, I think we would say tax in American English. But...
1: Yes, it's the same thing. I think in the Indian context, the reason I say cess rather than tax is constitutionally an indirect tax has to be shared between the center and the states whereas a CESS is levied for a specific purpose. So it's not shared between the center and the state. So no. it was a technical
0: kind An of important work. clarification. Um, I was very interested in your talk that you referred to the power of vested interests, and I think in every country. And afterwards, there were some questions about leadership, and you said enlightened leaders everywhere want to see the U.S. come back in, but there are also so such not-enlightened leaders. And with within India, how do you see sort of the political economy of action on climate? Where does the where is, does the re- resistance reside, and how can that resistance be overcome? And I'm going to be listening with one lens of an American who faces similar challenges here. So this is not to say that we don't all have this, but I'm interested in your view in your own country to give us insight in how we might proceed here.
1: Well, I think to some extent the situation in India is kind of similar to what you see here. Uh, there, there is an enlightened uh, professional group which is quite clearly aware of the problem, uh, feels that we need to do more ourselves, but they also feel that we would do much more if there was global cooperation. Because, you know, to the extent to which when you take some action and you don't benefit to the fullest extent from that action, you tend to do only as much as would get you benefits and you miss out on the rest. And that's true for other countries also. At the political level, I think there is now an appreciation that this is a global problem and uh, India ought to be seen uh, to be doing something in that area. So I think at the top political level, uh, it is recognized, it has been recognized for several years now. I mean, there's been a prime minister's council on climate change for the last eight or nine years, started with the previous government, continuing in the present government. But I wouldn't say that uh, at the broader political level, like, for example, in Parliament, I wouldn't say that there is adequate appreciation that climate change will have negative consequences. It's helpful for us to anticipate those and to take corrective action and to bear the cost of that corrective action. I mean, how many members of Parliament uh, would recognize that is not always clear. Part of the problem is that uh, at at an operational political level, at an operational political level, I mean, many politicians are aware uh, of the reality, but they cannot resist the temptation of taking a short-term stand uh, because it's politically convenient. It's difficult to separate those things out. I would say that in industry, you have exactly the same uh, division. Uh, For example, you know, when we introduced... uh, a transition to Euro 6 type norms for fuel uh, because that would hugely improve uh, it's the cleaner pollution. petrol, yeah. cleaner yeah, gasoline. in, pe- in yeah. petrol, gasoline, and diesel also. Uh, initial, the initial reaction of the automotive industry was quite negative. And they said it was disruptive, it could delay it, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm glad that thanks to a lot of very, very strong NGO action, uh, the government did not succumb to that pressure. And, you know, experience, even in the United States, demonstrates that um, private industry will resist a regulatory enforcement of anything as long as they think they can get away uh, with delaying it. But once it's enforced and they know they can't get away, then they'll spend all their energy trying to make sure that they meet those standards. I mean, you had this problem 30 years ago when you set what were thought to be impossible standards uh, on Uh, efficiency in refrigerators, which the U.S. industry said are quite impossible to meet. Somewhere in the 50s or 60s, I think. But the fact is, when they were enforced, they not only met them, but they bettered them. And I don't see any reason why we wouldn't have the same. This is so
0: nice to hear this from an economist, because it's very clear that you understand and believe in markets, but you're not going to say leave everything to the market. Regulation has an important role
1: to play. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the... Uh, What the regulation does is it, 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 well, it concentrates the mind. (laughs) And you could technically do the same thing uh, through uh, a tax which alters the incentive structure. But you wouldn't really know what is the optimal tax. And if you've decided that I want to reach this efficiency level within three years or four years, for a few things, it's worth doing that uh, and seeing how the market reacts.
0: Got just a couple more questions. The first one concerns resilience and adaptation. Christina Chan, who's our global director for climate resilience, was on the panel, and she, um, you know, asked a question about resilience. And you made a very interesting point that unlike emissions reductions, where there's a major problem with externalities—that if I reduce, I don't gain all those benefits—that with adaptation and water the benefits of action will accrue, mm-hmm. largely nationally. Could you talk about that a bit more and and maybe about the central role that you see water playing in India's climate adaptation and resilience efforts?
1: Well, to handle those in reverse order, uh, the central role of water is not just due to climate. I mean, India, is because of its limited freshwater resources, uh, and its large population, it is fairly close to becoming water-stressed. And some parts of the country are already water-stressed. So we need a much better awareness uh, of the need to manage water as a scarce resource. And in my view, that awareness is not there yet. Again, it's a matter of vested interest. I mean, if a huge amount of canal water for irrigation is preempted uh, by people to grow sugarcane, uh, there are lots of other farmers who could benefit with a distribution, a more equitable distribution of that water, but politics prevents that from happening. What climate change does is it sort of adds a huge amount of uncertainty. I mean, in the sense that it, it's not that it's going to rain less, but uh, the variability of precipitation is going to increase, and you're going to have more extreme events. So we need to anticipate that. And certainly, if extreme events includes two or three droughts in a row, then conserving the water you've got becomes extremely important. And the benefits of that will be almost entirely Indian. Now, you know, where where you have two countries sharing the same river, you could have problems of externalities. But in our case, I mean, we have all the rivers that we have, almost all, originate in India. Uh, And whatever we do to improve the quality of water management in the rivers, the benefits will go within India. Now, they may be distributed differently across states, and that could become a political issue also. But it's not the same as emissions. And yet, uh, you know, it's not easy, even if all the benefits come within the the national uh, boundaries, it's not easy to get things done because they distributionally affect different groups differently. Uh, and the ones that uh, think they're being hurt, you know, have a legitimate uh, cause of complaint. So you, that's where politics comes in. It has to be a balance uh, taken as a whole.
0: I'm interested to hear you use the term water stress. And I don't know if you know, you may be very well aware that uh, water is one of our key programs here at WRI. And we have the world's uh, largest publicly accessible database on water stress, which we call Aqueduct. And uh out of that work, we're very much, as what you're saying, uh, identified climate as an additional stressor in situations that are already uh, serious, and then uh, helping uh, organizations and, and governments to try and address that. So that's something we might explore further. My final question has to do with the remark I heard you make after your talk about the role of the United States, the very unfortunate political situation we have here, and the importance of technological leadership in not only standard setting, but in increasing the efficiency or reducing the energy uh, demand. Could you talk about that a little bit and uh, both the, the role of U.S. leadership and in the absence of U.S. leadership, whether you see that leadership coming from other places?
1: Well, there's no, there's no doubt that the U.S. traditionally has played a very major leadership role in global cooperation. Uh, I mean, the fact that the U.S. is a large country, a rich country with a large GDP uh, is one factor. Uh, but, you know, it's not just GDP alone. You, if you had the same amount of GDP because all the world's mineral resources were here, uh, I don't think you'd be as influential. It's the uh, technological capability, uh, the value of U.S. research uh, that gives the U.S. a special importance in the economic field. I'm not referring to its obvious military role. But I think the uh, global cooperation for many years has got used to uh, US leadership. It's not that the US leadership has always been uh, applauded, but people were quite happy to, if there's going to be somebody who's a dominant uh, power, uh, they want that dominant power to be broadly responsible and broadly willing to listen to what others are saying And work out a solution. And that is really the way uh, the US dominance has been accepted, if you like, since the Second World War. Now, in a major area of global cooperation, an actual withdrawal of the US is a whole different ballgame. Of course, one could say that uh, other countries uh, can carry on cooperation, and indeed, I mean, if they were forced to do without the U.S., they would still be better off cooperating together. Uh, But I think many of them believe that in the United States, at least amongst your professional classes, uh, there's a lot of seriousness about climate change, and it's a pity if the U.S. administration is not part of uh, whatever global accord is being worked out. Um, So I think for all those reasons, most people are hoping that somehow the U.S. administration will find it possible to get back on board. Uh, you know, these are long-term issues. It's not something that's going to be resolved today or tomorrow. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that the rest of the world will be quite happy to have the U.S. come back. It would make a difference because, you know, in our, in our countries, in each of our countries, there are climate deniers. Okay. Now, if the world's leading uh, economic power uh, decides to opt out, Uh, this will be used by everybody who wants to deny climate change to say, look, I'm not alone. I mean, you're the fellows who are (laughs) the odd men out. Here's the U.S. taking the same view. So I fear that, you know, you may get some of that. Uh, That's why I think it's important uh, to have the U.S. back on board.
0: Well, I think we'll leave it there. Certainly everybody in this building shares your hope that the U.S. will be back sooner than later. I want to thank you for joining us today for your uh, wonderful public lecture and for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much.
0: My guest today is Montek Singh Alawalia, uh, as I said at the beginning, he played a crucial role in getting India on a path of high-sustained growth, and it's been a real delight to have your advice today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Um, I hope our listeners will tune in next time for the next WRI podcast, available on iTunes, on Stitcher, and at WRI.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Lawrence McDonald. Till next time.